Good morning, faith family. It is so good to sort of be together this morning digitally. Uh, As it turns out, I am preaching to a full house this morning, so I will do my best to not be a little bit distracted as uh, someone snuck into the great room in here and, uh, and taped a bunch of pictures of members of the congregation to the chairs in what is no doubt a very compassionate effort to make me and Jay feel less like we're preaching to an empty room. So thank you so much to whoever is responsible for this and for all of you that participated. It's pretty amazing in here. I wish you guys could all see what's going on. We have some people who are clearly trying to make faces to distract me, others who are doing an excellent job of making an interested face to help me feel like they are very engaged in the message. Uh, And my personal favorite would be uh, Jaime Chandler's submission, who uh, opted for taking a picture of himself sleeping through my message, which is truly helping to make this feel like a much more normal Sunday morning. So I I am grateful. I just, I love the privilege of being a part of this family. It is so awesome to serve each of you, even in the weird ways that we have had to over the course of the last weeks, and uh, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, preaching, not to paper people, but to our real, actual, living, breathing family here, uh, God willing, very soon. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 6 now, and let's start this morning officially by praying through the Lord's Prayer together. So if you would, join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. If we really actually stop and think about what we are praying here, we would see that this is a revolutionary prayer. Right? This is this is a very subversive prayer. It's the prayer of the cultural revolutionary. It's a prayer of absolute surrender, the dying to the kingdom of self and stuff a request to completely upend life as we know it and to radically change our view of life, the universe, and everything. So the bummer of being detached by the screen right now is I'm not able to see you making this face. Like, seriously, Robbie? Like, you're still talking about the Lord's Prayer, right? The Our Father, right? Quite possibly the most ordinary and mundane prayer in the history of prayers. And we think that because we aren't really thinking at all about what it is we are actually saying when we pray this prayer. When it feels mundane, it's because we're not really acknowledging the words that we are saying and what they mean if we mean them. This is, it starts with an acknowledgement that I am not alone. You are not alone. You and I are part of a community of love with the God who is himself a community of love. A people under the loving care and absolute authority of the only omniscient being that inhabits eternity, who fairly 
and rightly deserves all credit for every beautiful thing that exists and every good thing that has ever happened to you and to me and to everybody. And who has a definite plan for his universe and is inviting you and me to participate in that plan. And we aren't even halfway into the prayer. That's just the first half. There is a divine brilliance in the flow of this prayer. We behold the nature of God first and then the scope of God's kingdom and then only then do we get on board with his will. If you don't believe those first two statements, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you don't believe those two, then, then you will never truly pray this third one, your kingdom come and your will be done. If you do believe those first two statements, then this third one becomes the only reasonable and appropriate response to that. Right? In our awestruck wonder that the majestic and awesome, perfectly holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly loving, triune God of the universe loves you as a daughter or son and me as a, as a son, then obviously I want what he wants for me and I want what he wants for the rest of the world, right? God, you do your thing. You are amazing. You are perfect. You do whatever you got to do and I want to be a part of that. Not in reluctant submission based on obligation or duty, but in joyful surrender based on trust and love. That is the essence of this next statement, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We want his kingdom and we want his will. These things go together. They can't truly be separated because his kingdom is where his will is fully and perfectly accomplished. It is where God exercises his absolute and complete authority, it is, which is a great thing, actually. As one theologian put it, we always and necessarily assume that what God requires must be right, not because he arbitrarily wills it, but because he does not arbitrarily will it. On the contrary, that he has and must have in every instance infinitely good and wise reasons for every requirement. And then he goes on to say, God's sovereignty is nothing else than infinite love directed by infinite knowledge in such a disposal of events as to secure the highest well-being of the universe. That is awesome. The best possible thing is for the best possible being to make the best possible decisions and that we would walk in that and reap all the benefits that come from that. The hang-up is that I often distrust that God is the best possible being or that he has made the best possible decisions. And I convince myself that rather than following him, I should set my own course and trust my own way. What, what makes us so convinced that our infinitely worse plan, based on hilariously limited knowledge and wisdom, and with a track record of plans that have failed time and time again, is the better option? Mostly because... The bottom line is, I will choose 
my obviously worse plan over submitting to someone else's every time. I just prefer to have control, even if I know that my plan is worse than submitting my control to someone else. Rather than infinite love and infinite knowledge, what I bring to the table is a seemingly infinite capacity for selfishness and misinterpreting things. And yet my heart is still prone to wander back to my absurd assumption that I can do it best. And by it, I mean life. But listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. This is God speaking through him. So it's truly what our God is saying. He says in chapter 32, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Infinite love directed by infinite knowledge in such an arrangement of events as to secure the highest well-being of the universe. And it's right here. We have access to it right now. The kingdom of God has already come and yet has not yet fully come. It is both here and it is on its way. The kingdom of God does not start at the afterlife. It started already and continues into eternity. The realm in which God's perfect will is always accomplished is accessible to us right now and one day will come in its entirety, in absolute fullness. Jesus says in Matthew 3 and 4 and 10, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of the heavens is right here. It is among us. Not that it will start, that it has started. It existed before creation. It existed perfectly in the Trinity. And then it was inaugurated right, or, or opened up to people, the general public, so to speak, in and through Jesus. It is here, church. It is among us right now. So what exactly are we praying for when we say your kingdom come? Sometimes we use a word so often or so incorrectly that we lose the simple meaning of it. Right? We think it's more complicated than it actually is. The more simple and common the word, in fact, the less we think about what it really means, right? So when you tell your child, your spouse, your friend, your coworker, your dog to come, come over here. What are you asking them to do? You're asking them to move towards you where you can view them and interact with them more closely and more clearly. Your kingdom come. 
Let Your kingdom come. Please, Father, make Your kingdom move towards us in such a way that we can see it and interact with it more clearly and more closely. See, the kingdom is already here. As we've said, it's, it is among us. We ask for more of it. That it would be close, that it would be more tangible, that we would be able to interact with it more closely, that we would be able to see it more clearly. Bring more of your kingdom of grace, of beauty, of creativity, of justice, of mercy, of life, of love, of compassion, of reconciliation. More of that, please. More. While the kingdom is here in part, the reality is it is still just a shadow, barely a glimpse of what is to come. There is so much more to come. There is so much more to rest our hope in. And so we pray that the kingdom would come in its fullness, in its completeness. We live in one kingdom, but are citizens of another. More than citizens. Not just citizens of another kingdom, but sons and daughters of the king of that kingdom. A kingdom that has already infiltrated this one. And one day will utterly conquer it in perfect justice and love. We often find ourselves, though, fixated on this kingdom and the kingdom that we live in. The kingdom of self and the kingdom of stuff. The one that seems to be right in front of our face. Not because it's better or more significant, but simply because it's right in front of our face. It's not better. Paul says in Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. However, something tiny and insignificant can block our view from something so much greater if we hold it close enough to our face. As one ancient rabbi put it, just as a small coin held over the face can block out the sight of a mountain, so the vanities of living block out the sight of infinite light. Outside our first house in California, we had a steep hill that went up to a fence which is not unusual because every house in California is fenced in. And so at our, at our very tiny backyard, it then went up into a fairly steep hill. And like I said, there's a fence that went across the top that really blocked our view from anything that was, that was beyond that fence. Um, but just past that fence, you couldn't see it from the yard, but I knew that past that fence and uh, 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 just past our property was a, a fairly large hill that went, that um, that was back there. And so one, one day, my friend Johnny and I decided that we would climb to the top of this hill so that we could see how far we could, we could see around there. And so we're climbing, and, and, and after about 30 minutes, um, because we use the word hill differently 
in other parts of the country. So after a, a, a decent 30-minute climb, we, we, we start to round over the top of the hill, and, and as we crest to the top, we see that actually this isn't the top, that, that this hill was hiding another higher hill beyond it. It was really kind of just like a plateau that then led to another hill. And so, of course, obviously, we had to climb to the top one because we did not set out to climb part of the hill. We set out to climb to the top of the hill. And so, just because the top moved on us didn't mean that we were going to stop our endeavor. So we continue to climb. And then as we round the top of the next top of the hill, we find out it is just another ridge leading to an even higher peak. So, short story already too long. Two and a half hours later, as we approach our fifth surprise peak, we realize that we have bitten off far more than we could chew. We did not anticipate needing to bring provisions with us on this particular excursion and realize that each step we took, we were getting further and further away from home and this has already taken far too long. So what we learned is what looked like a little hill from the base of it uh, was actually the beginning of the foothills of the San Bernardino mountain range. And the longer we hiked, the higher we would have gone, eventually topping out at a cool 10,844 feet. Further up and further in, if I may borrow a beautifully poetic phrase from Mr. Lewis. I never looked at that fence in quite the same way again out my backyard. It's only six feet tall. But because of my perspective, and my proximity, it blocked my view of a 10,000-foot mountain peak. Our fixation on stuff and self, on the kingdom of stuff, is like that fence. I have my little yard, our little kingdom, and and we miss its smallness and its insignificance because... It's so close to us, and because of our proximity and our perspective, it is blocking our view of the enormity that is just beyond it, at hand, among us. So how do we live with an awareness that just beyond our field of vision is a kingdom so vast and so grand that we could never actually reach its peak. The more we climb, all we will continue to do is go further up and further in into greater and greater awe and wonder and fullness. How do we live with that kind of awareness? We pray, your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come close enough that we would see it more clearly, experience it more fully, and grow in an awareness of it and a confidence in it so that when our vision is blocked, we would still be fully aware of what is just on the other side of that fence. 
John says in his letter in 1 John, this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The kingdom of stuff is fleeting and vanishing and will turn to dust and ash. But what is just beyond that fence, the kingdom of heaven, if we walk in that, it is forever, it is immense, it is immeasurable. And one essential aspect of the kingdom of God is the will of God being obeyed fully by every living thing. And far too often we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As, as though the prayer is only in a very broad sense about God doing whatever he needs to do in everything else. Right? You do what you need to do, God. You take care of those people and you punish those people and, and judge them rightly and you fix all the stuff that seems to be bad. And, and it most certainly includes all of that. But it also lands much closer to home as well. As close as our own hearts. What if we pause where that line actually pauses? Your will be done. Your will, Father, be done. Well, first, what, what does he mean by your will? And we could easily do an entire series on that topic, let alone on the kingdom of God, but that is not our purpose right now or Jesus' purpose in this particular prayer. So in keeping things as simple as possible, we're going to just tackle two aspects of this enormous topic. Two primary aspects of the will of God. Number one, what God has determined will take place in history and in our lives. And another aspect of God's will, which is what God desires we would live like. Okay, the first one does happen and will happen no matter what. The second one is disobeyed all the time. And we spend a lot of time in the church trying to figure out the first one, what God has determined to take place in history and in our lives. Right? Even though it is impossible to know and fruitless to try, and then we largely ignore what he has specifically told us about his will for our lives and that how we as responsible moral agents should live. The things that God has determined for his world will happen regardless of who is in power at any given moment or any other variable you could consider. The things that God has determined for you and for me in our particular lives will happen regardless of my bungling or even my overt sinful rebellion. God determined that Jonah would go to Nineveh. Jonah tried to get out of it by literally running to the other side of the world to escape Nineveh and yet he gets spit out right on the doormat of Nineveh because... What God has determined will take place is going to take place. If, however, we committed all of our grace-driven effort 
into following the will of God that he has plainly expressed to us in his word, we would find all those other questions largely sorting themselves out one way or another. What am I supposed to do? What job am I supposed to take? Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to live? What should I do about this decision or that decision? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is God's will. And whatever you do, you do for him and in him in a desire to obey him. Just going through a short list here, I'm just going to blow through these bullet points really fast. These, uh, these are some of the explicit things. And these are just the things that, that specifically say, for this is God's will for you, or it is God's will for you to do this. Here's just a, a short list of them. Abstain from sexual immorality. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Never repay anyone evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone else. Rejoice Always pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. So there is an aspect of God's will that is what he has determined and an aspect of his will that is what he desires for us to walk in. And so when we pray at your will be done, we are praying both a reminder to my heart to accept what he has determined and an appeal to the Father to help us to obey what he desires for us. Your will be done. It's not the only time that we read Jesus praying this phrase, is it? And the other time it is in a deeply, if not painfully personal context. Father, your will be done. Your will be done. Not mine, not ours. Your desires instead of our desires. Or better yet, align our desires with yours so that we would desire what you desire, that we would want what you want, that we would delight in what you delight in. So that we would walk in joyful obedience to your will immediately and fully right here on earth just like everything does so in your kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, let your kingdom come close enough that we would see it more clearly, experience it more fully and grow in our awareness of it and confidence in it. So that when our vision is obscured, when it is clouded, that we would still be fully aware of what is just on the other side of the fence, what is just on the other side of the fog. Help my heart to accept 
and delight in what you have determined and help me to obey your desires that you have clearly and lovingly declared in your word so that we may live more and more and more of the kingdom life right now in anticipation of the day when your kingdom comes in full forever. Amen.